Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our seventh episode of the Nauticast, entitled The Cup Has Passed, an analysis of A Game of Thrones Catelyn 2. Our second point of view chapter from one of the main characters of A Game of Thrones. And also, I would like to state again for the record that Catelyn Stark does nothing wrong ever. So, uh, spoiler warning, as we say in all of the intros to these episodes, this is going to include all published books. That is the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Before we actually kick into the uh, the episode and some of our thanks, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about our Patreon. We wanted to extend our thanks to those who have signed up for us yet. Um, just as a reminder, our Patreon is up, but we aren't charging anyone yet. Um, that's going to start around the April 1st time frame. So if you'd like to get in on it, check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. And as a taste of what you'll see in our special episodes that'll be available only to, pa- to Patreon-only users, uh, we, we're going to release an episode to the general public and on this podcast feed, so the main podcast feed, not the, um, the Patreon-specific one, as a taste of what you might find in our Patreon-only content. Emmett, you want to tell everyone about the special episode that will be coming to everyone's way in the March timeframe? Absolutely, Jeff. So as you might know, if you follow us on Twitter, if you've been listening to this podcast so far... We are contrarian curmudgeons on the subject of what the best book in A Song of Ice and Fire is. Uh, Common Wisdom has it that Storm of Swords, the third book in the series, is the best one. And Storm of Swords is, of course, a masterpiece and contains many great parts of the series. The Red Wedding, the Purple Wedding, the the others attacking the Fist of the First Men, uh, Tyrion's Trial in the Aftermath. A lot of great classic stuff. But Jeff and I are of the opinion that really where the series has perfected itself to date is with the much maligned fifth book, A Dance with Dragons. That's where we think it it really found itself in terms of character and prose and themes and setting and all those those good narrative elements. So the first special episode we were going to do is to make that case for why A Dance with Dragons is in fact a better book than A Storm of Swords. So we'll be uh, putting that out sometime in March and you can take a listen to that as a kind of a taste of what we would do for our special episodes and see if you want to sponsor our Patreon and get more special episodes like that. Yes, that is something that I am very much looking forward to talking about and I will not ruin any of the points that I have about this on this episode. So uh, probably it's probably going to be later in the March time frame. Um, we would we would love to release this this episode in the first week of March, but uh, timing as it has, as it is right now means that we'll probably end up releasing it towards the end of March. So keep your ears peeled and your eyes open for your uh, your Twitter feed of choice, and we will see you will see a uh, a special episode that will be featured on that would normally be on our Patreon, but will be released as a sample for you guys for everyone the general public to listen to and uh, and enjoy. So. Yeah, check your feeds, and we'll let you know exactly when the episode is coming out. We'll blast it out either in the next episode or two or, and also on, on social media. So thank you to everyone who's been listening along to our podcast. Um, you guys have been great. We've really enjoyed the interactions that we've had. And um, yeah, it's, it's been really nice getting a lot of feedback on the, uh, the Ned chapter and now on the Jon Snow chapter. Um, it's been cool to get everyone's takes on that. And uh, we wanted to thank a couple people in, in particular um, of some of the, some of the comments either on Twitter or on Tumblr that we've seen that we've really enjoyed for this week. So, Emmett, do you want to kick us off on that? 
Sure. At LuckyMC44 said that they've, quote, not sure I ever felt so in on a fandom as I did when I understood the Bulls or Brown are full of people during this week's <laughs> podcast. A reference <laughs> to one of many instances of cannibalism that occurs in A Song of Ice and Fire, although to bring it back to A Dance with Dragons, really the, the instances of cannibalism ramp up in that fifth book, but they are definitely there throughout the series. So that was a nice comment. Yeah. And our friend uh, at ASOIF read through, that is our friend who does the Song of Ice and Fire line by line tweet through on Twitter said, quote, don't know if it's already been brought up already, but just wanted to be majorly pedantic. The first mention of Stannis, though not by name, is actually in the previous chapter. So the previous chapter to the um, to the Gatter chapter, I think. Is that what he's what he's referring to? I believe so. Yeah. Okay, I, I could be wrong on that. Um, he goes on to say, he or she goes on to say, Danny recalls how she fled Dragonstone as a newborn just before quote the usurper's brother, quote unquote, took the island with his new fleet. Uh, so we uh, appreciate the the correction. Um, we encourage people to correct us. I know um, another person that that uh, corrected us this uh, on our Jon Snow episode was uh, at Certified Mad Boy, who said on Twitter that the Lannisters have green eyes and I was wrong. I said they have blonde hair and blue eyes, but they have blonde hair and green eyes. So uh, apologies for that. Although I would like to add something in that Tywin Lannister has flecks of gold in his green eyes. So certified mad boy, you are also not a hundred percent correct as well. Just wanted to let you know that brother. We're all wrong together here. Uh, ben <laughs> sale, who is uh, at sale Ben on Twitter said, quote, finish the first Ned chapter. Not much to really say other than, yep, I agree with that, which really that's the best kind of possible comment you could have on the podcast is just to agree with us. So more of, of that really. The only, the only thing I'd right. add, they said is that my own head canon is that Ned's parenting style is a reaction against his father's. He always seems to mourn Brandon more than Ricard. And that's, yeah, that's an interesting point. <laughs> Ned really never brings up his dad. He does bring up his brother a couple times, brings up his sister, of course, quite a few times. But yeah, it is interesting to think about how Ned is, is a different father than his dad, how spending time with John Aaron and Robert might have shifted his personality away from his father. So yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting component of the backstory to consider in terms of how it's influenced Ned as a father. And yeah, yeah, of course, for sure. Ned's, Ned's parenting style is something that comes up a lot in this book and for, in future books. So that's definitely a worthy point. Yeah, that's something I never picked up either. And I think that's a great point. And I think that's something to uh, for us to be on the lookout for as we're going through the Game of Thrones is how often Ned is mentioning his father. He does mention him once in this upcoming Catelyn chapter we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. But only very briefly, and then he doesn't really mention him a whole lot after that. I'd never seen that before, but that's a fantastic point and a great little catch. Absolutely. And then on the Tumblr, on my Tumblr page, porkquentin.tumblr.com, uh, Blue Lemons Forever uh, sent me an ask saying, I've been immensely enjoying this podcast. I highly recommend it. If you want to do a reread of this series and expand upon what you already know about the basic plot and players, this is great. It's both entertaining and informative. You get a good in-depth look at the characters and the overarching themes. There's some bad tinfoil deservedly slain and some insightful ideas and theories <laughs> brought forth. The analysis of the Game of Thrones prologue chapter, episode one, is perfection, explaining how it sets the tone for the series as a whole. I challenge anyone to listen to that episode and not immediately get hooked. So what could oh, be better praise than that? It's very sweet. I approve. That's very, very sweet. Yeah. Well, thank you very much to... Uh to everyone and uh, for, for commenting. And uh, those are just some of the a smattering of responses that we received uh, this past week. Um, we the, the one thing I also wanted to, to say as well is uh, if you email us and uh, or if you send us a direct message on Twitter, because we have gotten a, a few of emails and a few direct messages on our Twitter account and you want to be um, 
and, and you're okay with us sharing that, just let us know in, in the email or in the message because some of the, the stuff is, is terrific. We've got a number of terrific DMs and emails, but I but also want to respect people's privacy as well if you're, if you're trying to send that to us as, you know, just trying to reach out directly to us in particular uh, as opposed to the greater whole. But if you'd like to be featured, we would, we would love to, to talk about it because we got some, some terrific DMs and, and emails over this past week. 100%. Again, as we've said in previous episodes, we always welcome feedback and especially people noting things we left out or made mistakes or, you know, expanding on the stuff we said in the episode to come to different conclusions. And that's, a, you know, a lot of why we're doing what we're doing here. So please keep that up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now we turn to our second chapter from the point of view of Catelyn Stark, who, by the way, like I said before, has never, ever done anything wrong ever. But before we get to everyone's favorite part of the cast, or at least mine, where Emmett gives us the depth that I, or we, right, we, right, totally we, we so crave, I thought it might be, I might give a surface level summary of what happens in this chapter. And the reason why I'm going to do this is because I'm assuming that there's a few of you folks who are reading along with us that might not be, or rather listening along with us, might not be reading through the chapter with us. Uh, and that's totally fine. I mean, uh, I kind of do that with the uh, the Davos Fingers podcast, which is a, a favorite podcast of mine. Uh, I'm, I'm not re- reading uh, Dance with Dragons right now with them, but I am listening to them and they do an excellent uh, summary of things before they actually get into the discussion itself. So kudos to them for for this. And uh, also, please, please do check them out. They're fantastic. And they've got 66 or 67 episodes out right now. Um, so here is a summary of what happens in this chapter. We open with Catelyn Stark thinking about the hot springs of Winterfell and how her room is hot. And then it gets hotter when Ned Stark climbs out of his bed naked. They've just finished bumping uglies and it was good. Very good. At least for Catelyn. But Ned is troubled. Troubled because he doesn't want to go south to become Robert's hand. Ned becomes more troubled when Maester Lewin enters the room bearing a secret message, but not for Ned. For Catelyn. News from Lysa. John Aaron didn't die of natural causes. Instead, he was poisoned by the Lannisters. Arguments ensue, and Ned finally relents to going south with Robert. He'll be taking Sansa, Arya, and Bran with her to Catelyn's consternation. But there's one more matter to deal with. Jon Snow. Catelyn doesn't like the boy, and she refuses to allow him to stay at Winterfell with her. Lewin proposes a solution. Benjen told Lewin that Jon wants to take vows to join the Night's Watch. Ned reluctantly agrees, and everyone prepares for the journey ahead of them. So that's kind of the basics of this chapter and what happens in this chapter. And that feels very surface level. And that's because it is very surface level. That's just kind of the plot of this chapter. But there's a whole lot of story embedded into this. Emmett, can you give us that depth that you're so good at talking through? You're raising the expectations high, Jeff Wilsworth. I'm not going to be able to meet them now. But but sure, this is one of those <laughs> chapters. This is one of those chapters where I really distinctly remember my first time reading it because it's such an important chapter in terms of the overall narrative thrust of the series. This is more or less where the plot actually begins. We've seen a lot of interesting setup in the previous chapters in terms of character traits, narrative elements, things to pay off later, things like the others on the march north of the wall, the dire wolves, uh, Danny and Viserys across the narrow sea and their backstory regarding Robert's Rebellion, a lot of intriguing stuff, a lot of really well-done exposition, a lot of interesting character traits. But this is really where the momentum that will carry us through the entirety of the book starts. Because this is where, as you said, Ned and Catelyn learn that there is a murder mystery afoot, that John Aaron did not die of natural causes, that he was murdered, and that he has now been accused of being murdered by the Lannisters. Of course, as we will know 
two books down the line, that's actually not the case, that it was in fact Lysa and Littlefinger who murdered John Aaron and now are framing the Lannisters for it, which is a great bit of narrative irony that the Lannisters, who are such avaricious, arrogant people who have you know committed a variety of crimes, who will go on to commit a variety of crimes, who are leading this kind of shadow coup within the government of Westeros, but the one crime that they're accused of that Ned kind of pursues them on is the one crime they didn't actually commit. So that's a, that's a nice little bit of irony coming back to this chapter, knowing what we know about who actually killed John Aaron. But, but from the perspective of this chapter, this is where the plot thickens. This is where you realize, oh, okay, this is not just going to be a case of Ned struggling with his relationship with Robert and trying to accept a new job. He's going to have a specific task as Hand of the King. And the Lannisters are set up in this chapter as his obstacle, his enemy. Not just rivals, not just people Ned doesn't like but as, as people who are, could be potentially be enemies of the crown, enemies of Ned Stark. And this is where we see the first stirrings of the war that will break out at the end of this book, The War of Five Kings, which goes on to encompass a variety of factions, as the title of that war indicates. But uh, emotionally speaking, for us as the audience, that a lot of that war boils down to the conflict between House Stark and House Lannister. That's kind of drawing from the War of the Roses framework that Martin is working within. And that really begins here with the accusation that the Lannisters murdered the hand of the king, John Aaron, Ned and Robert's father figure. But it's it's not just a, a layout of that plot to begin that will consume the rest of the book. It's also a very intimate character-focused chapter in the way a lot of the previous chapters have been. Something we've talked about in this podcast is how well Martin delivers exposition in these opening chapters of the book that he focuses not just on shoving information down your throat, but on integrating that information into character dynamics. And this chapter is a great example of that. This is really where we get the core of the Ned-Cat relationship. Uh, it opens right after they've had sex, uh, which I think is I think is just a great interesting thing in genre fiction in general. Rarely do these saintly departed parent, rarely are these saintly departed parent figures shown as sexual beings who enjoy each other physically and have their own intimate little relationship. Generally, those, you know, your the mom and dad in genre fiction are kept behind glass and you don't really get this, this close look at who they are as people and how they interact. I mean, this is part of what we said on Catalan One that Martin wanted to show us what King Arthur's mom was like and what her, what her life mm -hmm. was. And, and this is part of that, but showing Ned and Catalan's uh, sexual relationship is not just something that had to happen in order for our heroes to exist, but it's something that's an ongoing, important part of their relationship and kind of intermediates between them and their dynamic. It's, it's an important chapter in terms of establishing who they are as characters and who they think, how they think about politics. That comes up a lot in this chapter. Uh, we'll get, get into the relationship to the show later, but uh, Catelyn, suffice to say for now, has a, a very opposite reaction to what she has in the show in terms of encouraging Ned to take on the position of Hand of the King. And she's clearly thinking through the politics about why she wants him to do that and what the consequences of refusing would be. Ned, as we said in his, his first POV chapter the other week, is, is mired in his past and what he's lost. And he's thinking deeply about his family. He has the, the, the great line which gave us the title of this episode when he's talking about uh, Brandon Stark, his older brother. The Stark who was originally betrothed to Catelyn, and he has this monologue about how all of this was meant for Brandon. He was the one meant to be a father to queens and hand of the king and to marry you, and I never asked for this cup to pass to me. And that gives you a great sense of the melancholy of Ned Stark that, you know, not only does he turn out not to be the main character of the series, because he dies at the end of this book, but he never wanted to be the main character of any story. He was, he was content as a second son, and he feels... You get the sense that the last 15 years he's been thrust into the spotlight over and over again into a role he didn't want to play. And 
you, you feel sorry for him, and Catelyn feels sorry for him, and aches for him, and wants to go to him, but at the same time tries to keep him tethered to, to the politics and the real tangible consequences of what's going on. And then that relationship gets ramped up when uh, Maester Lewin, their, their loyal servant, enters the room with this message he has received uh, from Lysa, uh, accusing the Lannisters of killing the Hand of the King, and that just that takes that, that previous discussion between Catelyn and Ned over, oh, why, should I be the Hand? Why should I be the Hand? What will happen if I say no? And really ramps it up to, turns it up to 11, to borrow from this is Spinal Tech, <laughs> because... Now you see that there's, it's not just well, what will Robert think of me, but that there were lives on the line, that this is a matter of blood, that someone close to Ned has been killed and he might have the authority to figure out how and why. So that's, I mean, that's really what I love about this chapter and what makes it so memorable is it's not just that it's such a significant chapter for the overall plot of this first book, but how well it, it, it grounds that, those plot movements in this intimate relationship between Ned and Kat. Um, I was on recently... An episode of the uh, the great podcast, uh, uh, Drunk ASOIF, uh, which is kind of mo- moderate, modeled on drunk history. And uh, it's hosted by uh, Chloe Ketchum, uh, at Lies Never Gold on Twitter. And we were talking about our, our various favorite uh, ships and relationships in the Song of Ice and Fire. And I brought, brought up Ned and Cat, and I got teased mercilessly by her because it's a very vanilla ship. Because it is just basically mom and dad. But it, that that is what I love about the Ned and Cat relationship, is it's... Again, that Ned never asked for never asked for her, never asked for this cup to pass to him. That she was supposed to marry Brandon. This was an accidental marriage, consummated amidst war and loss, and it, it could have easily been a very cold, detached dynamic uh, that carried through the rest of their relationship. But they have organically built up this this closeness and this intimacy with each other, which you really see resonate throughout this chapter. And that's that's what I love about it most. Yeah, so I really do love the uh, the Nat the the Nat the Ned Catlin dynamic that's played uh, in this chapter because, like you say, it it can be something that could have been very cold, right? They were never meant to be together. Um, y- you know, you you could have the same sort of Cersei Robert relationship where, you know, Cersei was meant for for Rhaegar Targaryen according to Tywin, and Robert was meant for Lyanna. And so you had two different people that are meant for two different um, uh, people that they were going to marry, but they didn't end up marrying them. And the relationship is very cold and hostile, and um, they both don't like each other. But here, you have Ned and Catelyn that form probably one of the best unions in 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 the series. I, I, I I'm sure there there might be people who would dispute this, but I would say they're probably the best working couple that that exists in Westeros, and and it also is the one that they seem actually in love with each other, which is good. Uh, it's it's really fun to get into that and to see like how. Uh, the, these parental figures are are good and they're loving and they're um, they have a good relationship and that's that's good to see in, in fantasy. One of the the interesting things though too is that I, I find fascinating in this this chapter is uh, something that I'd never seen before is that Catelyn is is a bit more ambitious than I remember her from previous readings. Uh, she says how uh, she would have a sense of pride from Sansa marrying Joffrey even though she knows the type of person that Joffrey is, because you have that, that scene where that line where Ned is like, but Joffrey, you know who Joffrey is. And Catelyn quickly finishes it. He's the king, or he's the crown prince, rather. And he'll become the he'll be the king one day. And uh, that's something I, I never picked up before, is how Catelyn has a little bit of um, uh, ambition here, almost like a, kind of a southern ambition for her daughter. And, and it makes sense, right? I mean, you want your, your kids to, to do well, and being the queen of Westeros is 
having your kids do really well. I mean, you have that same sort of dynamic too with Doran Martell after after Robert's rebellion, promising Ariane to Viserys Targaryen, and he wants to uh, have his children be boosted up high in in the world. But at the same time, like it's interesting that that Catelyn here is um, thinks it's a, it's a great honor for for Sansa to be married to Joffrey, despite kind of maybe potentially knowing the type of person that Joffrey is. Yeah, I think Catelyn is she's certainly ambitious and she's certainly kind of hard headed. Like I get the sense when she cuts Ned off, as you mentioned, when Ned says Joffrey, Joffrey is she finished for him crown prince and heir to the Iron Throne. Quote, and I was only twelve when my father promised me to your brother Brandon. So what Catelyn's trying to say is, yeah, Sansa's young. Yes, Joffrey's a brat. But this that's normal. That's normal for us, Ned. I was only a child when I was promised. Your brother was hot-headed. You know, she prom- she doesn't seem to think much of Robert as a whole. So I'm sure Catelyn's argument would be, yeah, Joffrey is Joffrey is obnoxious, but so was Robert, I'm sure. And he- like, nothing really phases Catelyn. Nothing surprises her. Nothing strikes her as out of the ordinary about this. Like we said in her first episode, she is a... A woman of her time and place, and she's expressing the conventional wisdom of her time and place. And what I love about this chapter is it doesn't come off as as just... It's not just conventional wisdom to be deconstructed. You can definitely see the logic Catelyn is working within. I mean, she, she brings up the great point that, yeah, Ned should say yes, not just because... Sansa's, uh, Sansa might someday be queen, her sons could rule from the wall to the mountains of Dorne, but that if he says no... This is going to be a real blow to Robert in that, uh, quote, he will not understand that. He is king now, and kings are not like other men. If you refuse to serve him, you will wonder why. And sooner or later, he will begin to suspect that you oppose him. Can't you see the danger that would put us in? Ned thinks of all these relationships as intensely personal. He's just thinking about the individuals involved. Whether that's Robert, he's my friend. You know, that's Sansa. She's my daughter. She's only 11. Joffrey, he's a brat. Which, none of that's inaccurate. But Catelyn is the one zooming out to the bigger picture and saying, okay, but here's how these relationships need to work within the political system we are in. And that, that you know, that's telling in terms of how both those characters go on to evolve through, throughout this book and, in Catelyn's case, the next couple books. That Ned, when he gets to King's Landing, is always thinking in terms of personal relationships, personal dynamics. He's not really good at handling institutional power and thinking about his role and how that role interacts with other people in different positions. And that's o- always what Catelyn is thinking about. Um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, Ned uh, says, go ahead. No. So, so a question for you, I was, I was curious about this. Do you think that's because of Ned has a very Northern conception of what rule is rule is about bringing the small folk in during the winter time and, and feeding them at the winter town and establishing these personal relationships where, again, we talked about this in, uh, in Brand's first chapter, where uh, Ned has brings you know the cook and the uh, the guy who takes the kennel master and uh, old Nan to to his table and he gets to know these people really well and he thinks that you now because this is how a, a ruler is supposed to rule he's supposed to know his people and establish these friendships and these bonds whereas Catelyn do you think that she's maybe a bit more world weary she's seen Huster Tully and grown up under him and known. You know, Huster is not a friendly guy, right? I mean, we're going to find out as we progress in, in the narrative. Huster was a very ambitious dude and an ambitious dude to the detriment of, of his family. Do you think that's a, that's a, the dynamic that Martin is playing with in between these, these interactions between Catelyn and Ned? I think that's a great point. That's definitely there. You see how invested, like you say, in Branwood, Ned is in the very personal northern model of justice. 
Uh, I think it's also that uh, the people being brought up, the person being brought up specifically is Robert Baratheon, his best friend. And he says, you know, Robert would never harm me or any of mine. We were closer than brothers. He loves me. And I love this line here. If I refuse him, he will roar and curse and bluster. And in a week, we will laugh about it together. I know the man. And that's just so heartrending because you, you realize how what a lonely man Ned Stark is and how much Robert means to him and how much he wants it to be the way it used to be. So I think it's a, it's a combination of his model of justice with his very intense, personal, nostalgia-soaked relationship with Robert. And it's also, I think, because when Ned thinks about these topics, he thinks about going south to King's Landing, he thinks about playing the Game of Thrones, he thinks about being ambitious... What comes to mind is what happened to his family when they tried to do this a generation ago and how the end result was his father is dead, his brother is dead, his sister is dead, and his best friend now has to wear a crown. And so for Ned is kind of flinching away from these issues because he wants to think about Robert as his buddy, not the king he wants to serve. Because if he thinks about Robert as the king he wants to serve, right. he has to think about how Robert got that crown. And then all that trauma comes back. I mean, again, to come back to the line that gives this episode his name, when... When Catelyn brings up that she was only 12 when my father promised me to your brother Brandon, quote, that brought a bitter twist to Ned's mouth. Brandon. Yes. Brandon would know what to do. He always did. It was all meant for Brandon. You, Winterfell, everything. He was born to be a king's hand and a father to queens. I never asked for this cup to pass to me. So for Ned, yeah. this entire conversation is indicative of the life he has to live because his brother and his father died. So it, it, it's just associated for him with this trauma and loss. And he can't, he can't really measure it in any kind of objective way because it, for him, it feels like, Oh, this is the life I wasn't meant to live. This is the stuff Brandon should have been doing. And this is in, in certain ways, a, a parallel to what happened to my family. Like, I think, he, like he says, you know, my, my father went south to answer a king's summons and then look at what happened to him. So he, I mean, for all these reasons, Ned, I think, is is incapable of viewing Robert's offer to him in a, like a, a big picture detached institutional way. For, for a variety of reasons, cultural and personal, he can only view it in this very intimate person-to-person -person way. And, and Catalan is, is trying to nudge him in the direction of saying, okay, but this is what we can gain, this is what we have to lose. I mean, for her, there's, for her, there's no reason to say no. She doesn't see any reason to refuse this. Right. And for Ned, Ned's reasons are intensely personal. They're just to do with his family and his, his love of the North. Uh, yeah, Catelyn, she says, you know, Eddard Stark had married her in Brandon's place as custom decree, but the shadow of his dead brother still lay between them. <laughs> I mean, that gets back to what we were talking about in Ned's first POV chapter, that he's just constantly haunted by these ghosts and the impact of his decisions and how he thinks about all the all the positions he's in and all the big decisions he has to make and they're always with him and uh, you know the Ned Cat dynamic works for me in large part because she she understands that uh, Catelyn softened then to see his pain but she also is trying to trying to push him in a in a, in a in a direction that makes more sense to her and that's what I love about their relationship that it's it's content and it's sweet and it's organic. They build something up, but also like they're not, it's not flawless. They still have things they don't right. quite see eye to eye on. And those things are, are very grounded in their backstory. Yeah. You're right about that. Is that it, it, they, they are flawed people and flawed individuals. Um, but also the people around them are also flawed. An interesting thought that I had when you were talking was that Ned spends a lot of this book being disabused of his notions of, 
uh, of Robert, you know, you have in Ned's first chapter where Robert shows up and, you know, he hasn't seen the guy in nine years and he's enormous. He's um, obviously has a big drinking problem, as we see in the um, uh, in, in the Winterfell Feast from John's chapter. And this is these are the things that this man has become. Uh, so he's not the same person that Ned uh, knew back in the Vale when they were being fostered there. And he's not the same person that they went to war with to uh, free the kingdom from the tyranny of Aerys Targaryen. And he's even not the same person that he was when the, the Greyjoys rose up and they had to put them back down. Um, Cat, Catelyn has a point here, I, I'm, I'm afraid. I, I mean, I wish that Robert was the, the same guy who, who struck out against uh, all the bad things from the realm in times past, but he's really not the same the same person here. Yeah, I mean, Catelyn has the great line, you knew the man, the king is a stranger to you. So she understands that there's a difference between the the individual and the job they hold. That they're like, you know, yep. you take a person, you put them in an institution, and that changes the person. And Ned is, for, again, a variety of reasons, refusing to acknowledge that. For him, the institution and the person are the same thing. They have to be the same thing. And that's how politics works. And that's how politics works at its best. And I get his argument. It's, 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 a, it's a powerful argument, well-grounded in his history and the history of House Stark. But... Uh, you can see the seeds being laid for his fall in King's Landing because that's just not how the hand of the king or King's Landing politics works in general. You have to be able to work within your position and realize that hand of the king Eddard Stark is just has to be a different person than Lord of Winterfell Eddard Stark. And Ned just refuses to yeah. acknowledge that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. Um, but it's also funny too. There's there's a there's a little bit of irony there uh, where you know if you go back to to Ned's first chapter where. Robert is telling Ned, damn it, Ned, stop calling me your grace. You know, we were, we were boys once we mean more to each other than that. So, so Ned is operating at least with, he's, he's not an idiot in thinking that, you know, oh, Ned, Robert would never do this because he was my friend because, you know, he also has this, you know, within a few days of him going down to the curse with Lyanna, to see Lyanna with, uh, with Robert, Robert is telling him things like, oh, you're my friend and, and all these things. And so, so Ned's not without reason necessarily, but he is, as we find out, it, it does play a big part in his downfall. He's, he's being a little naive, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's absolutely being naive about who the um, uh, who Robert is and the role that he occupies. And uh, exactly, he keeps being naive throughout the the book. Unfortunately, um, again, this is downfall. true. And he's not, he's right about he's right about Robert in that Robert does not bear any ill will towards Ned. What Ned fails to realize at this point is how kind of weak Robert has become. Like when they get to Derry yeah. and Cersei orders Sansa's wolf killed, and it's not like, you know, it's not like Robert goes, yes, mwahaha, kill the wolf. It's that Robert doesn't stop her. That Robert walks right. away and that Ned appeals to him and Robert does nothing. Like that's what right. defines Robert Baratheon as king is his passivity, which is such a surprise to Ned because the one thing that you can't say about young Robert Baratheon is that he's passive. But that it's, hmm. that's become true with the king himself. He's 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 Robert is a bad king by omission for the most part. It's it's about what he right. doesn't do and what he's lazy about and what he just he just lets Lannister he lets the Lannisters and, the, and Littlefinger take over the government. And that's what Ned that's what Ned really doesn't realize at this point. But he he learns it well enough, unfortunately. And really not until his his second to last and his final chapters in the uh, in the book and then in Arya's final chapter in, in A Game of Thrones, unfortunately. Um, but the, the question of Ned is, is an interesting one. So normally we talk about like the structure piece of, of some of these chapters. We'll talk about how Martin is writing like fantasy concept, concepts in 
or he's writing around this concept of John's bastardy, as we talked about last week. But uh, for this, for the structure discussion here, I wanted to focus in a little bit more on Kat and Ned and kind of take a, a big step back from what's going on in the chapter itself, although we are going to talk about that, and talk a little bit more of the meta side, why George is choosing the point of view character that he's choosing. So why is Catelyn and not Ned the point of view character for this chapter? And this could seem like a boring question to, to folks who are, who are listening to this podcast, but I find it fascinating. And maybe you will when we peel back a few layers. So far in this reread, we've had both Catelyn and Ned chapters in A Game of Thrones. Both give us their unique takes of the unfolding plot, the set piece of Winterfell and the backstory. And while the plot takes off with Lysa's letter, we get more cool reveals about the hot springs flowing through the walls of Winterfell. And we do get some backstory with regard to Bran Stark in this chapter, the man Catelyn was originally betrothed to. I wonder whether there's an additional impulse in having Catelyn as our POV here. I wonder whether George here wanted Cat as the point of view because, like a good writer that he is, he wanted to preserve the mystery of John's parentage and some of the lesser Robert's Rebellion mysteries. Let me kind of explain a little bit. So while we'll talk about this in depth later on, there is a whole lot of Jon Snow and a whole lot of hints of R plus L equals J present in this chapter. When rereading this chapter, I couldn't help but wonder what could possibly be going through Ned's head when Jon Snow is mentioned or his fate is discussed. Jon Snow, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, dominates roughly about a third of the chapter in Catelyn's mind. You know, the very mention of his name sends Catelyn spiraling into this, these complex emotions she feels about the boy and how it's the shadow that lays in her mind between her and her, her husband. But I kind of wonder again what Ned is thinking here. Is he thinking about Lyanna? Is he relieved at John going to the wall? You know, kind of remember here that though he saved John's life by declaring him his son, he's still a king's man at heart. So he's still Robert's man. And he doesn't want to see the restoration of the Targaryens to the Iron Throne. One of the points that comes out strongly throughout all of Ned's chapters in A Game of Thrones is how he's consciously forcing away thoughts about Lyanna and John. But would he be able to here? Now, kind of certainly later on he's able to in Ned's second chapter when they're journeying south with Robert along the King's Road, but would he be able to here? I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting to consider. Like, what would this chapter look like if it was from the perspective of, of Eddard Stark? So that Ned isn't our point of view here uh, and that we don't get these these questions answered shows a driving force in writing good point of view chapters in Martin's universe. Sometimes George uses point of view characters to keep inverse in universe mysteries a secret from other characters. Think Sam and John's conversation where Bran is brought up and Sam has to keep the secret that Bran is alive. Uh, and also in that same conversation where uh, John is keeping the secret that he's sending Mance Raider's son with uh, Gilly and Sam and Maester Aemon south uh, to, to Old Town. That we, uh, get, gets revealed in The Dance of Dragons where we get the same chapter, um, albeit from John's perspective. And then other times he kind of wants to delay the emotional impact of an interaction. Think about how Danny is the point of view when Quentin Martell is presented to her in A Dance with Dragons. And then we don't get back inside Quentin's head to grapple with his rejection until the end of A Dance with Dragons. But here in Kat's second chapter, I think that George wants to preserve some mystery for us as readers. The reveal, and this is what I would say, I would say that the reveal that John is the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna can't come at the beginning of the story. It has to have a long, slow burn until it explodes in a climactic moment in the narrative. And, you know, as a good writer, George has to let the story progress and progress and progress. And that becomes one of the focal 
points in the story where the narrative will have a major change and have a major shifting so where that John suddenly realizes, or maybe doesn't suddenly because it's going to be at least six books until he potentially realizes this, that he's actually not Ned Stark's biological son, that he's the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and uh, what he considered his former aunt, Lyanna. So it's good writing on George's part. It's how the, it's, and I think it's a good way that George is able to preserve mysteries to have Catelyn Stark and not Ned be the point of view character. Well said, sir. I think that's absolutely correct. You know, it's a tough balance that Martin has to strike because, yeah, like you say, he can't, he doesn't want to reveal it immediately. He doesn't want to have it be uh, obvious beyond any reasonable doubt of who John's true parents are. But he also, he also doesn't want it to come out of completely nowhere when we do learn the truth, how, you know, whenever we do in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. So he has to strike a careful balance. And it, it struck me reading this chapter that it's an interesting parallel to the major political revelation in this chapter, which is uh, how John Aaron was killed. Like, we are given <laughs> we are given what seems to be an adequate explanation in this chapter, right? The Lannisters killed John Aaron. Okay, like, okay, that's, right. that's, the, that's the source of the plot. We're going to go with that. You know, as, as the book goes on, we don't see anything that counters that. You know, we learn more about the Lannisters and we learn about Joffrey's parentage. And, it, that, you know, it, it makes sense with the Lannisters killing John Arryn. And we learn about Stannis going to John sure. Arryn with the parentage. So, like, okay, it all makes sense. And then suddenly the rug is pulled out from under us when we learn that it was Littlefinger and Lysa. But even that, you know, if you go back, isn't – that doesn't come out of nowhere. It makes complete sense with how Lysa is established as a character with the backstory we learn about Catelyn and Littlefinger and how Littlefinger was in love with her. It, it fits Littlefinger and Lysa's characters. So it's, 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 a, it's a brilliant answer to what we didn't even know was still a question. And I think you can see Martin doing a similar thing here with John's parentage, where he's, he sets up that he's, he's Ned's son by an unknown woman. He gives us, he, they mention, as we'll bring up later, a Shardane in this chapter. He mentions Wyla in his Ned's second POV chapter with Robert. So we think that's what the mystery is, is which of these women did Ned sleep with? And in truth, the mystery is, is a complete rug pull from that. It's, it's, it's Rhaegar and Lyanna, and it was keeping it secret for completely different reasons. But if, right. if you go back to this chapter, it, it fits completely with how Ned is haunted by his family and always talking about his family. And like you say, how we're in Catelyn's POV, so we don't get entire access to Ned's thoughts. Or, uh, you know, she says the, the, there's a shadow between them of the woman he would not name, the woman who had borne him his bastard son. And there's a great irony reading that, knowing who Ned and John's parents probably actually are, is Rhaegar and Lyanna, that, yeah, the one, that, that shadow of the woman is with Ned, but it's not a woman he slept with, it's his sister, who he misses dearly. And again, that, that line about the cup yeah. not passing to me, that Ned is in part talking about the secret he's had to bear of, of John's parentage, that this is never anything he, he wanted to keep. And so it just, it just, it adds adds a layer on reread to come back to this, and yeah, I agree. Martin has to strike that careful balance where he 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 drops hints and he lets you know what the question is, but the answer is in a a, a category you could not possibly have imagined. And there's all there's so many little hints about about John as a as Rhaegar's son. Like I was rereading this chapter for this podcast, and it starts with this great description of Winterfell as this. This castle built on hot springs, and the scalding water, scalding waters rush through its walls and chambers like blood through a man's body, driving the chill from its stone halls, filling the glass garden with a moist warmth, keeping the earth from freezing. So, metaphorically speaking, that's fire inside ice. That's <laughs> that's Winterfell, the great Stark oh, heritage. Awesome. But in truth, the the core of it is is this this hot spring, this fiery element, just like John has Targaryen heritage hidden within a Stark exterior. 
and it, it and of course it sets up Winterfell as a as a holdout against the others and against the winter. But is is, is Catelyn says, you know, the the Starks were made for the cold. Ned would tell her, and she would laugh and tell him. In that case, they had certainly built their castle in the wrong place, and that gets at the heart of Stark identity. That on one hand they're tied to the winter and tied to the north, but they're also they also only have their power because their castle is a refuge against that winter and against that cold. So they're they, you know they are they are warmth within a cold place. And that, that fits John's heritage perfectly. It does. That's that's a terrific pickup about how the even the walls of Winterfell cry out as to, to John's identity. That's something that I have never, never seen before, but that is a fantastic point, my friend. And I am now have those uh those chills running down my back and my hair standing up on, you probably can't see it on, on the Skype video, but <laughs> I believe it's, you. it's, it's there on the, uh, on my arm, but, uh, but yeah, no, that's, that's, that is terrific. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance, man. Like, no, I was just saying, but you're totally right. Like that, that balance wouldn't exist if this was from Ned's POV, because if it was from Ned's POV, there's no way it wouldn't be given away. Cause I think you're absolutely right. He is totally thinking about John throughout this entire chapter there were a lot of his chapters, and, and having this from Catelyn's POV where she's wondering what he's thinking makes it makes it much more interesting because then we're, we're set on that trail of, okay, what is what is it that Ned's thinking about? Who is this woman that he's not telling Catelyn about? And, and that sets us up perfectly for the reveal. It really does. And, yeah, it, it's, it's so cool, like, to, to have... To, to go back and reread this, this chapter, you know... And, you know, we, we, at this point, we have the reveal from the show that John is, is Rhaegar and Lyannis. Um, but to, to go back and see this here, I, and, and I think here, here's, here's something that, that kind of comes up a lot. They're like, oh, well, R plus L equals J is just like, it's too easy of a mystery. It's too much of a, like, if we have it all figured out. But the only reason why you have it figured out, if you're going to be totally honest with yourself, is because you have the internet there and you have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people picking through a text and finding the clues for R plus L equals J. And, you know, kudos to the to everyone who, who has done that in the 20 plus years now since the Game of Thrones was released. But at the same time, you know, you want to, you really have to get into the mind of George as the writer. George as the writer is there thinking, you know, I this is the big reveal is going to be that John is Rhaegar and Lyannis. That's going to be something that is going to set the narrative on fire come future books uh, past the Game of Thrones, but I'm not, but I can't reveal that here because I have to keep mysteries a mystery until there's a be, there's the best place for it to have a narrative reveal in. You, you can't reveal that John is Rhaegar and Lyannis when Ned is still alive. Uh, you can't reveal it when Catelyn is still alive in some fashion before, before the Red Wedding. So it, it works really well. And I think it really shows us about who George is as a writer and that he's not going to be like, here, here is the, and he, and most writers wouldn't do this, by the way. It's, it's just a, an example of George being a good writer of preserving mystery for us as, as we progress uh, in, into the narrative so that we have something that we're kind of like thinking about, that we're thinking about John, we're thinking about his identity, we're thinking about his parentage. Even if, you know, if you're reading through the first time, you might not get that the, the, the truth about his parentage that he's not Ned's um, Ned's son that he's he's Rhaegar and Lyanna's but it's still it's it's there it's it, ex- it establishes something that is going to have a major payoff come wins or perhaps in a dream of spring however George ends up structuring those books and it's uh it's great it's good to come back to you know this chapter that was probably written in the early 1990s and see all the uh, the groundwork that George is doing for for something that's uh, that so far in the books but in the show has had a bit of payoff. Yeah, like I said, what works so well about it is that it's 
these are answers to questions you didn't really expect that you're 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 primed to wonder who who did Ned sleep with to father John when that's not the question at all. And then this chapter primes you in the second half of the chapter when they're talking about the clue from the the, the message from Lysa that the little fingers that the little fingers that the Lannisters murdered John Aaron. You're you're primed to go, okay, so Ned's gonna go figure that out and he spends the rest of the book trying to figure out why that happened. When in fact that's not actually what happened at all, and that's I think that's that's great. such a great intricate way of setting up your mystery plots. You, ha- you have this setup that gets the reader curious, that gets them hooked, that gets them thinking, and then they they realize they weren't they were never even asking the right question in the first place. And that's just I think that's yeah. I mean, we, when we talk about R plus L equals J being obvious because we've been as you say swimming in this this soup for so long of the fandom that figured it out a long time ago. But if you step back from that, look at how it's structured in the book, it's a brilliant reveal because all the yeah. groundwork is there, but he's misleading you and he's dragging you in another direction entirely with what the text is literally saying. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's terrific writing. And you can, you can, you can, what I love about it is you can feel how excited he is about that reveal oh, in yeah. these early chapters. You can, oh, yeah. you can feel him putting the seeds in. It's like, oh, this is going to be so great. They're not going to see it coming, but then they're going to come back and see it coming. And that just, you know, that enthusiasm is something I love about coming back to the series. Yeah, this this is this is like this is a great chapter. I mean, I really, I'm, I, I I've been gushing about the past couple chapters, except for, the, except for the John chapter, which again is not my favorite chapter. Unfortunately, remains not my favorite chapter. But I, I found some good stuff in that chapter. But man, this chapter is just great to get into. You know, in the year 2018, after we've we've read all five books and be able to go back and be like, oh my god, yeah, right here, you have so much of the stuff that George is going to be using to reveal John's parentage here, but. We're going to have the opportunity to talk a lot about R plus L equals J in our theory and groundwork section, but I wondered if you would talk a little bit more generally about some of your likes of, of this chapter. Sure. Something I mentioned earlier, but I'll expand on here, is Catelyn's political consciousness, I think is really interesting. That, you know, in the show, you know, generally speaking, I like season one of Game of Thrones. It's probably overall my favorite season of the show. But one early decision I'm, they made that didn't make much sense to me, and I think was unfortunate, is that they completely changed the dynamic of this scene. They had Catelyn as the the weeping wife who wants her husband to stay home and is arguing for Ned not to accept the handship and tells him you can always say no, Ned, and doesn't understand what the consequences of that would be. And for me, that's <laughs> such a cliche, especially for a woman in her position in this genre. And for me, Catelyn was yeah. designed by the author to run contrary to those cliches, so I really much prefer what she does here, which is that she takes Ned through the consequences. She's like, okay, here, you know, if you accept this position, you know, you're putting our family in a position of power, you're putting Sans in a position of power, and if you don't, you know, Robert is going to wonder why. He's not going to understand that you just don't want the job. Because that is, you know, Ned, you know, you right. got to feel for Ned in this moment that what he, he just doesn't want to leave home. He doesn't want to leave his family, and He's had this great little bubble unto himself ever since his family died that's been keeping him from dealing with the trauma of it. And there's this great sad line when he finally decides to accept the job. Uh, she did not speak, nor did the maester. They awaited quiet while Eddard Stark said a silent farewell to the home he loved. When he turned <laughs> away from the window at last, his voice was tired and full of melancholy, and moisture glittered faintly in the corners of his eyes. My father went south once to answer the summons of a king. He never came home again. And that's really when you see what's driving Ned here is this this huge personal loss in his life that he just associates with the Game of Thrones and ambition and King's Landing and going south. And for him, Winterfell is the, the sanctuary, the oasis. Again, that emphasis in this chapter on Winterfell as a building, 
and its its self sufficiency and the hot springs like that's what it is for Ned. Right. This this wonderful self contained world that keeps him alive and keeps his family going, and now he's being asked to leave it, and it's like he doesn't really have a good reason. Like he's it's just instinctive. He just doesn't want to do it, and it feels wrong to him. And Catelyn is the one who's being very logical and saying here's why you should and here's what will happen if you don't. And I think I think that's that's just it makes her interesting, it makes their dynamic more interesting, it makes her just less of a cliched character and it it gets you into her headspace is because I mean that's that's the same Catelyn Stark who will make huge political decisions for better or worse for the rest of her POV arc in this book and the next two. And yeah, that's what yeah, that really stands out to me about this chapter is is that Catelyn is, is always thinking about politics and always thinking about the angle and always thinking about what this means. And, you know, like she has the secret language with Lysa that Lysa used to send her this message. And, you know, like, you know, Ned is, you know, Ned's relationship with his siblings is this loss and this anguish. And, and for Catelyn, it's this very kind of material, like, here's what, here's the message she's trying to send me. And yeah, I think that their, their difference in that way makes them really interesting or just, it, it ties into Catelyn's overall, uh, no BS kind of attitude, which is something I love about her. Maybe my favorite moment in this chapter is when she gets the message and she she reads it and she's she's freaked out by it. And then she uh, she threw back her furs and climbed from the bed and uh, she goes to light a fire and like Maester Lewin looks away and Ned's freaked out. And it's like, what are you doing? And then Catelyn says, Maester Lewin has delivered all my children. This is no time for false modesty. <laughs> I just love that about Catelyn. She's, She's she's just she's no no pretense. Uh, she's not sticking to pointless. It's like you know she Catelyn again. This woman of her time and place. She sticks to decorum when she believes in it, but she has no pretense for it in this moment. Just like when she says to Edmure in a couple books, "You were whoring or wenching, get on with the tale." Like I, I love those moments with Catelyn when she she drops the drops the veil and just and just says what she thinks. I think that makes her a really fun character. Yeah, she is a really fun character, and I, I do totally agree about her being a political animal. And it really kind of bears itself out too when she becomes essentially Rob Star, her son Rob's chief counselor when when he takes arms against the Lannisters at the end of a Game of Thrones. Um, how how smart and incisive she is, and uh, you know even though you and I are will disagree with. Um, her advice to Rob at the beginning of the Clash of Kings to go to Renly and not Stannis. There is a bit of political calculus behind that. You know, go to the king that has the strongest army as opposed to the one who has the best claim. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's good. And it's good to have Catelyn occupying that, that role. And you can really see her in that space of being um, Hoster Tully's daughter, of being this maybe not political mastermind, but a very incisive and smart politician in the realm of Westeros and her father and adapting some of those things to um, her role as the Lady of Winterfell and then adapting it later on as her role to her sons, as her son's uh, a counselor. Uh, and, you know, yeah, kind of she, picky, yeah, sorry. go ahead. Go, no, go for it. Oh, I was going to say, it's, I mean, she's, yeah, she's always thinking about the angle and Ned's not. And that's what makes the relationship interesting. Like when they find out, they get that letter from Lysa and, she says, now we truly have no choice. You must be Robert's hand. You must go south with him and learn the truth. She saw at once that Ned had reached a very different conclusion. The only truths <laughs> I know are here. The south is a nest of adders I would do better to avoid. So they think, you know, Ned thinks about power as a fundamentally bad thing, I would argue. It's something that has to be limited and contained within the individual. And like, you know, you got to only right. kill the guy when you're sure. And you know, and that's that's Ned's political instincts, and Catelyn is always thinking about 
you know, okay, if we move to the next step of power, how can we use that to keep ourselves safe? How can how can we? Okay, the Lannisters killed the hand of the king. What's the what's the most power we can attain because we have to have power to deal with that? Whereas Ned's instinct is, wow, that means King's Landing is really screwed up right now. I should do my <laughs> level best to avoid it entirely. And you can see the case. You can see you can see the case they're both making. But sure, uh, sure. I think you know that's. It's, it, it makes it makes their dynamic interesting that they're both coming from these different places, but you can completely understand, you know, why they're doing it. There's the, it's a great mix of personal and political because it's on one hand, like we we're saying, this chapter is so intimate. It starts with a sex scene. They're talking about their past, but it's also this huge. It's also the chapter that opens up the big picture. And uh, you know, Catelyn's heart went out to him. Quote, but she knew she could not take him in her arms just then. First, the victory must be won for her children's sake. And man, is that is that ever Catelyn right there in a sentence? Like she's, oh, she's, yeah. she loves Ned, she wants to take care of him, but she has to push him in the direction she thinks will do best for the family. It's, it's almost like an organized crime thing. You gotta do right by the family. And that's what she's yeah, thinking about yeah. in this moment. You say you love Robert like a brother. Would you leave your brother surrounded by Lannisters? Like that's so great. She's, yes. she's, she understands Ned's personal way of looking at things. So she's trying to take advantage of that. She's saying like, okay, Ned, if you insist on thinking about politics in this intensely personal way... You say you love Robert like a brother. Would you leave your brother surrounded by the Lannisters? And that's what that's what ultimately convinces him. Right. And that's just that's so clever. That's so clever of her. I love that. It is super clever. And you know, that kind of brings me to my like is is Ned and Kat's close relationship. And I don't want to repeat a lot of what we said earlier, but it is very uh, close, intimate, warm, and also flawed as well. And and I, what I, what I love about it is that it's it's shown not told. Um, that is kind of a a cliche in terms of writing. Um, but it, it's a cliche that works in that you open with a sex scene as opposed to Ned and Catelyn telling each other that they love each other very much and they have been together for so long and they love each other. <laughs> you know, you don't want that as in, in, you don't want to read that as, as a reader. You want to read about them boning and then having the uh, um, that that closeness uh, shown to us in in a way that also defies again what we talked about of, of fantasy expectations of the archetypal. Uh, mom and dad uh, doing it. You know, you don't, don't, you will not see this in, in Lord of the Rings. You will not see Aragorn and Arwen uh, boning at any point in, you know, Fellowship or uh, Return of the King or uh, the Two Towers, the Two Towers being the middle one. Um, but you do see it here, and I think that's terrific and great. Uh, the other thing I really like about this chapter is uh, our introduction to Maester Lewin. Uh, I, I like how he's described as being mostly bald and gray but mostly bald. And I think that's a, a cool way of, of describing how he looks. And I think the, uh, and I, I, I didn't look this up before the show, but the uh, actor who plays Mr. Lewin, uh, he's been, he's kind of a, um, a method actor. He's, he's, he's been in a number of, of small bit roles in, in British cinema. Uh, he's a, he's a terrific uh, actor. He was in the, this movie. I really like a lot called Eastern promises as a uh, inspector, um, but he's terrific. And he's very much who, uh, who I imagine as Mr. Lewin now. Um, the one of the things I like in this, the book that isn't shown in the show is that Maester Lewin has all of these pockets all up in his sleeves and Catelyn wonders how he can even move his hands and arms because he's he's always got like a toy or he's got a gift or he's got a book or something like that folded under these uh, these pockets. Yeah, I, I just I, I, I like Maester Lewin. I think he's a he's a terrific um, secondary character. And, uh, you know, his death in the end of A Clash of Kings is one of the saddest in my mind. But, but here, you know, getting a good introduction to him as a scholarly, smart, incisive, and also a bit of a political animal, too, is a really cool thing that I, I like in this, this chapter. Yeah, it's a great—it's it's the first maester we meet. It's our introduction to their order, and 
why they do what they do and the social role they play both within a family and within Westeros at large. And it's it's a great way to be introduced to the Maesters that he's introduced delivering a secret message. Like that fits the Maesters so well in terms of how they handle communication, in terms of the conspiracies that are brought up a couple times regarding their role with the dragons and Southrun ambitions. It fits so well that the first Maester we meet is delivering a secret message involving a conspiracy. But yeah, that Lewin, unlike... Unlike, say, Grand Maester Pycelle, who's just a kind of a relentlessly wretched, horrible human being, that Lewin is part of the family. <laughs> like Catelyn says, right. he's, he's, he's seen my vajayjay a dozen times, direct quote. <laughs> like, she, you know, like, he's, he's right. one of them. And he loves their kids as much as, as, as they love their kids. And it's, that's why it hits so hard when he dies. And it's the same way with, uh, like, Crescent at Dragonstone. Like, he's, he's, part, of, he's part of them. Right. And he's in, he's close to their secrets, and he gets to know these things. And you, you immediately get the sense about about why Bran trusts him so much, and about how close he is to all these characters, and how important he is. And yes, he's played by yeah, Donald Sumter is the is the actor's name. Yes, okay. Uh, on yep. Game of Thrones, and yeah, he does. He he's, he's he's definitely one of my favorite bits of casting in the show. I think he does an amazing job. He fits exactly how I thought about Lewin in the books. He has that same. That same mixture of like of detached wisdom, but also real love and passion for mm-hmm. uh, for his for the people he's, and he's he's got the my favorite bit that they added. Like there's this scene they added in the show where Theon's taunting uh, Osha. Yes, he points. Yeah, Theon says, "I forget what it is. Something like, uh, you know, is, is she is she still a prisoner? She's not in chains." And like Lewin says, "Are, are those mutually exclusive in your in your understanding?" <laughs> He likes points out to Theon that yeah, you might not be in chains, but you're still a prisoner too. Uh, and I, yeah, the the, the Lewin Theon relationship when Theon takes over Winterfell is really fascinating yes. and great. Where Lewin hates him, but still parts part of him still loves him, and is Lewin's the only Lewin seems to be the only one who understands that Theon is just like a frightened child, just doing what he thinks he's supposed to do. And and he really seems to understand deep down that's what's going on with Theon. But yeah, he's he's a really wonderful insightful character and this is yeah it's a perfect perfect framework to introduce him yeah, yeah i, I love really want a maester lewin chapter yeah that's true i'd love a right there's yeah i'd love to i'd love to see him i mean i love old town the citadel i'd love to see what he got up to there uh, i'd love to see his early days uh with with the starks i love yeah i like to think about him because he's an outsider in winterfell too i like to think think of him being kind to catelyn and rob when they first showed up and trying to you know trying to be sweet and kind to them, um, but yeah, he's 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 a wonderful a wonderful secondary character, and I agree it's it's yeah. it's it's intensely it's intensely sad when he dies. So I look forward to to sharing some tears with you at that point. Yes, sir. we'll have to have a few drinks before that one for sure. Um, the, you know the funny thing is about this this chapter, um, we we both we both had to dig hard to find things that we disliked about this chapter. Um, do you want to go first about, about your dislikes on this one, or no? You go first because I think your your dislike kind of encapsulates my sole dislike of this chapter too. So go right ahead. Okay. Okay. Um, so my dislike is a uh, this is not a dislike of George or this chapter. It's more of a dislike of some of the things that the fandom kind of grapples onto, but it does come as a result of how George writes this chapter and a number of the other chapters that ensue afterwards. So. Um, my only real dislike about this, uh, about Catelyn 2 is the timing of, of it all and how it all leads to a lot of tinfoil silliness by the fandom. Uh, now George here is, he's writing 
events occurring in close proximity because it elevates tension and drives the plot and all those types of things that we love in the story, uh, especially in the early book books where, where the plot is driven very, very quickly, where you have chapter after chapter where major events happen, at least after this chapter. Uh, my nit here is the timing of it all. Lysis' letter arrives shortly before Bran is pushed from a window, and then shortly before the cat's ball tries to kill Bran. So some theories speculate that the timing means that the person who delivered this letter was the cat's ball, and that means that Littlefinger was behind the cat's ball, or that Mance Raider was behind the cat's ball, and no, just no, man. Like, in A Storm of Swords, George does resolve the mystery of, of the cat's ball, but I, I know we're going to talk about that in significant depth come Catelyn's next chapter, because that has been a theory that has taken on some vogue of recently for inexplicable reasons. Um, and I can't wait to talk about that with you, but I, it is kind of a, a weird, the timing piece of it where, and I understand it too, because George is kind of like writing, he's like, hey, I'm writing a book here. I'm not writing for fans to develop these theories, but at the same time, the theories develop because of how quickly the, the first book is paced. And the pacing does have some drawbacks in a Game of Thrones um, pacing, a little teaser for their swords versus a Dance with Dragons. Uh, does have a significant issue with my early enjoy with my enjoyment of the early chapters from A Storm of Swords, but I'll save some of that for for that uh, that episode come here in a few weeks. I agree. That's my only real objection of any kind of this chapter. Overall, it's it's an incredible chapter as you can tell by us gushing about it. When I'm maybe my favorite one of these early Winterfell sweet really? chapters uh, up there with Brand Two. I think it, I just love again the mix of the intimacy and the politics and how they r- relate to each other. I think it's just so well done. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think this, where this chapter really shines, as I've said in previous chapters, is if you compare it to opening chapters in a lot of fantasy series, where it's just a wall of exposition and no emotional connection to any of it. Martin generally right. does a great job at making you care about the information he's delivering and getting you hooked and having it rooted in characters you care about. But yeah, he's doing a lot of things at once. Sometimes he just has to stop dead and have like, okay, here's the three paragraphs where Catalan thinks about her relationship with Jon Snow, which like, you know, (laughs) that is just stopping the book dead. So a cat or character can just relate to you things that all the characters involved already know. Right. So that's a little awkward. And yeah, like you say, that's also a little awkward that in these early chapters, he's setting up so many things to pay off later that they kind of all run into each other. And it's, it's easy to, to, I think, draw incorrect theories from that jumble and kind of turn them all into one thing when, in fact, what it is is just a lot of different things happening at once. Like you say, Mass Raider is here and Littlefinger is planning a thing and then the cat's paw sent by Joffrey and, you know, all this all this stuff is happening at the same time. So it's easy to draw, I think, uh, incorrect links between all of them. Sure. But, yeah, I mean, that's – like you say, that's, that's, that's something that's ultimately more on us than the author – you can only do so much about a nitpick about this chapter because it's a really good one. Yeah, for sure. And that's the thing, too. Like, you, you do have those three paragraphs of exposition about Jon Snow, but then you also have the backstory about Brandon and, and Catelyn, which doesn't feel like that George is, like, stopping the narrative to drive the backstory because, you know, you have that thing with Ned saying, you know, Brandon would have known what to do. And, like, he's really obviously upset about about that and thinking about his brother. And it does help the backstory to have some resonance to us as readers. And so that's that's something else that's in there. So we so you see that with Brandon and with Catelyn, but you know that resonance doesn't end with them. It also pushes its way forward when we start talking about uh, R plus L equals J, because this chapter is chock full 
of everyone's favorite secret parentage theory and the only, well, the only one of the few correct ones that are, that people have, have put forward in the fandom. So uh, if we continuing on with the, in RLJ theory from the John episode and from the Ned episode, uh, we get a fair number of RLJ hints in this chapter. Um, there's a number of wonderful quotes here, which talk about it. Uh, here's some of the key ones. First, Catelyn thinks about Jon Snow a lot. As Emma talks about, she, he sp- she spends about three paragraphs of exposition thinking about him. And um, she finds it odd that Ned would bring his bastard home with him. And she thinks, quote, the Starks were not like other men. Ned brought his bastard home with him and called him son for all the North to see, unquote. And why does Ned bring Jon home and call him son? And that's kind of answered earlier in this chapter with Ned saying, quote, Robert would never harm me or any of mine. We were closer than brothers. He loves me, unquote. And yeah, you can see there that Ned is correctly calculating that claiming John has his own will safeguard the boy from harm by Robert. Because, of course, we know Robert despises Targaryens, is cool with the death of Targaryen children. So that's part of how Ned protects him is by casting him as his own son. Robert loves him. Robert would never, would never harm my, my son. But we, uh, we do get some really kind of lovely and, and deeply ironic pathos in the way that Catelyn thinks about John's mother. Quote, whoever John's mother had been, Ned must have loved her fiercely. Nothing Catelyn said would persuade him to send the boy away. And that's just so sad because it's true, of course. Right. Ned did love John's mom, but not in the way that it's a betrayal of Catelyn. Right. It's, 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 it's the uh, sibling bond between him and Lyanna. That's what drives him to keep Ned close and... You know, Catelyn, if Catelyn knew that, of course, she'd be much more understanding about it. But all she can interpret it as is this is this this gap in their relationship. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny. Ned, you know, it's George is winking at us as readers, as rereaders, rather, um, because you have that line from Ned's chapter from our episode two weeks ago where we did talk about this. But it says it's, it's, quote, Lyanna had only been 16, a child woman of surpassing loveliness. Ned had loved her with all his heart. And then, you know, you compare that with Catelyn saying Ned must have loved her fiercely. It's it's very obviously that George is saying, hey, you know, connect these two lines together and you have a pretty good idea of who, who John's mother is, though not the father. That that kind of comes a bit a bit later on. There's there's a couple other things here too, um, but I think one of my favorite ones, and we can talk about this in depth, as much depth as you'd like to. Um, I, I'm sure that Chloe would like us to talk about this for, for hours, but uh, we can we can probably we probably can't do that. But we do get uh, one of our most important hints of RLJ in the text, and it comes in a line that Ned tells Catelyn after she asks him about his relationship with the Shardane, that is the Lady of Starfall. Uh, he he tells Catelyn this is some years before the events from this chapter. He says, "Quote: He that is John is of my blood, and that is all you need to know." Unquote. So it's really uh, interesting because Ned is talking about John is of his blood because it's both accurate, but it's also deceptive on Ned's part. John is literally, quote, of his blood. That is his nephew. But Ned isn't telling the full truth, only hinting at, it, hinting at us, hinting at it for us as readers. It's terrific. Yeah, it's it's again, that sense of like he's giving you an answer. But at the same time, he's letting you, giving you these little hints that it's not the correct answer. Like, Asharadane seems to answer this question of who John's mother is. But then in Ned's next chapter, he, he brings up Wyla, and he seems he confer- he does the same thing. He confirms without confirming to Robert that, yes, that she's, she's John's mom. So he sees Martin sets up all these potential answers to the question, but hides the real one in plain sight when you wouldn't even think to ask it. 
but yeah, if you put together, right. like you say, him him loving John's mother fiercely and him loving Liana so much and him freaking out when Cap brings it up, which is so unlike him as a character. And yeah, he's my blood and that is all you need to know because anything else after that would, would give us away to Robert. It's 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 terrific. And it, it, it gets at, and it's something we can talk about a little more when we get to John 2, but about uh, Catelyn's uh, relationship to John and about how she treats him. Uh, you know, we can save, I think, the more kind of emotional person-to-person stuff about that for when we get to John 2 and they're at Bran's bed and she says something extremely nasty to him and we can talk about how that how yeah. that develops. But I think the, the key thing to understand about Catelyn's relationship towards Ned and how she feels about having Jon's bastard around is it's what Catelyn resents about Jon Snow is not that Ned had a bastard. Right. That's not what she dislikes. It's established well in this chapter. It's part of Catelyn's no BS attitude, her realism, her political consciousness. Many men fathered bastards. Catelyn had grown up with that knowledge. It came as no surprise to her in the first year of her marriage to learn that Ned had fathered a child and some girl chance met on campaign. He had a man's needs after all and they had spent that year apart. Ned off at war in the south while she remained safe in her father's castle at River Run. Her thoughts were more of Rob, the infant at her breast, than of the husband she scarcely knew. He was welcome to whatever solace he might find between battles. And if his seed quickened, she expected he would see to the child's needs. That's really reasonable. That's really a a rational adult saying, yeah, look, we just got married. I know how this works. You're at war. Whatever, man. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, you know, I'm really thinking more about the kid. This is really what why we're doing what we're doing. I'm not angry about you with you about this. It would be silly to be angry. It's it's great. It's very realistic. But then she goes on. He did more than that. The Starks were not like other men. Ned brought his bastard home with him and called him son for all the North to see. And this is the critical part here. When the wars were over at last and Catelyn rode to Winterfell, John and his wet nurse had already taken up residence. This is the real problem. Hmm. It's not that Ned had a bastard. It's that Ned is is treating his bastard as if John is his heir. That's what he's acting like. He's so protective of him. He brought him home first. He's calling him son for all the North to see. Like, you know, Catelyn is an outsider in the North. Her son is an outsider in the North, a son with Tully colors. This is after a time when the, you know, the Southron powers have killed the Lord of Winterfell and his heir. It's a politically touchy time. And Ned handled that extremely poorly. You know, Catelyn has very good reason to fear John and fear what his claim could mean. The Blackfires speak to this, what it means to have a son who looks more like the, the, the ruler and acts more like the ruler and is, is treated as if he's more northern in this case than your, your true-born son. Like, that's a legitimate concern on Catelyn's part. I don't think it excuses the personal nastiness to sh- she shows to Jon Snow, but that personal nastiness is not there because Catelyn's a bitch and is mean right. And is a bad mom and doesn't like John. It's because she's being asked to raise someone who who is a potentially fatal threat to her own children. Like I don't think I would handle that situation well. I don't know anyone who would handle that situation well. That's an impossible situation no. to be put in, especially as a young, vulnerable woman in her when she first came to Winterfell. Do I wish she hadn't told John that she wanted him to die? Yeah, I wish she hadn't told him that. <laughs> that's that's a horrible thing to say to another human being, especially a young human being. That's that's awful. But I get why. And I think for me, the ultimate, yeah. the ultimate mistake being made here is by Ned. And Ned, too, is in a tough situation. He wants to keep John safe. He wants to keep around this last memory of the sister he loved. But man, it would have been so much better for everyone involved if he just fostered John at White Harbor instead. That would have, like, because if he'd done that, 
Catelyn's not going to ride to White Harbor to tell John, "Hey, you're, you suck." Like that's not <laughs> Catelyn's problem. She doesn't. She doesn't care that Ned slept with another woman. It's not. It's it's to to borrow again from from the Godfather. It's not personal. It's strictly business. Right. This is this is a this is a family political affair for her. John is a threat, a legitimate threat, and that's nothing to do with John being evil either. Like that's that's the situation that, that 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 they're left in, and for me that only adds to the pathos of it because if only she knew the truth, she wouldn't feel that way. She wouldn't feel as much of a threat if she understood why Ned was doing that. I mean, she would probably yeah. still feel angry at Ned for putting them at risk from Robert, <laughs> given who Ned's, given who John's dad really is. But that's the tragedy of it, that all this, this misinformation and lack of information has led these people to feel this way. So, again, we'll get into, we can get into that more later when we get to John 2, but that's, that's always how I've always felt about the Catalan John relationship is, oh, this, these, the, both of these people have just been put in this impossible position, and I, I wish Catalan could deal with it better, but I, I, it would be like asking Queen Neris to raise Egan the Unworthy's bastards. Like, right. It's just, it's just, you, it's, that's a lot to ask, is what I would say. It's <laughs> a lot to ask. Yeah, that's probably, that's a little bit of an understatement, but yeah, it's, it's totally true. I, I can't blame her um, for saying no. I, I mean, the, the thing is too, gosh, I, I feel like we're, we're spoiling our discussion for John too, but I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, George says that, you know, Catelyn never mistreated John. I mean, she was cold and, and to him, but it wasn't like that she was like beating him and, and, and things like that. And that, that whole, um, thing where he's where she tells him that she wishes that he was dead that he had died in, in the place of bran um it was a was a one-off one-off thing but and, and i'll leave i'll leave that part there because that is a gonna be a really good discussion when we get to john too um but really i mean yeah think about it like the blackfire example rears its head up in the storm of swords where rob is talking about um naming john as his heir because he thinks that both bran and rickon are both are dead so if he the only thing that he feels like he has left to do is to name John as his his heir, right? But Catelyn is like, hey, slow your roll, man. Like if you do this, you can have a situation where John's kids have the potential to kill your kids. And we have the whole Blackfire and the Blackfire rebellions. All five of them, or six of them, if you consider uh, Young Griff and John Connington's invasion, the sixth iteration of the Blackfire uh, invasions of Westeros, which spilled the blood of tens of thousands of people in Westeros. The same thing could happen in the North, too, if John's children uh, grow up believing that they are the rightful heirs to Winterfell, and they're growing up alongside of the children of Rob or of Sansa, or of Arya, or any of these other characters that at that point in time in the story they think are alive or dead, um, or, or rather they think that they're alive, it's a real threat um, to Catelyn's grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on and so forth. Um, that The point that you make about how John looks very much like Ned is really uh, vital here because we're talking about an illiterate society in Westeros where the majority of people don't read and write. They couldn't tell you, they couldn't read a family tree and be like, okay, so John is the bastard son of Ned, which doesn't put him in the line of succession. No, it's 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 a very visual society. You know, when you talk about the medieval times, um, one of the interesting things about it and the historical side is that you have these beautiful churches in France and in England and Germany and Italy, 
And they have these wonderful and glorious stained glass windows depicting scenes from the New Testament and the Old Testament and uh, trying to tell the, the biblical stories that the uh, the priests and the, the clergy want to convey. But the reason why you have those things there is because the damn people can't read the Bible to figure out these stories for themselves. They have to look at these pictures and be like, oh, okay, that's what he means. He's talking about, so Jesus was on the cross and he, was, he died and he was resurrected and you know all that sort of stuff. The same sort of thing operates in a Westerosi society where John looks like Ned. If he looks like Ned, he's a threat. If, you know, if Rob says, okay, he's my heir, okay, that, that's, that's, that, that is the end of the story right there. He looks like Ned, he looks like a Stark, and uh, he becomes a threat to any of Catelyn's offspring. So she's being realistic in the setting. She's not being just an awful, hateful, evil person, despite what the multitudes of idiot fans think about her. Um, but, you know, I mean, I wasn't planning on it. Your theory is bad and you're ugly. But those of you who think that Catelyn is, is an unrealistic, awful person are ugly and your theories are even uglier. Boom. And, you know, she might it might actually happen. Like, I mean, we're seeing as it develops in the story today, like, you know, you have Rob's will naming John the heir, but you also have Sansa potentially coming back north with the army of the Vale at her back. You have Davos searching for Rickon who will potentially be backed by both Stannis and the Manderleys as Ned's heir. You have Bran, that at least the the Littles know that Bran is alive, and potentially more people than that, should Bran speak from the Weirwood at the Crofter's Village, where the clans are. So mm-hmm. Catelyn's worst fears might come true, where you have her children and their claims running up against Jon Snow. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, you know, I, th- I think ultimately probably in the story that'll mostly be rendered irrelevant by the others showing up, I don't think we're going to see a full-on civil <laughs> war in the North. I don't think there's really time or space for that. But uh, the possibility is going to be there. Be- sure. And, and Catelyn's going to be proven at least someone right about that. Like, yeah, this is, you know, much as you love John and personally you trust him, the, 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 these are the potential political consequences. And that could speak to everything we've been talking about in this chapter, how Ned is focused on the personal and Catelyn is trying to pull on back to the big picture. And that means, you know, there's obviously flaws to both of that, but that's, she's, she's got good reason to think the way that she does. And it's com- coming from a coherent philosophy that's rooted in her time and place and is not motivated just by evils. Speaking of foreshadowing beyond just the R plus L equals J stuff we see in this chapter, this also continues something I was talking about a lot when we did uh, Ned's first POV chapter, which is the foreshadowing of Ned's death, the climactic event of this first book. And you uh, you noticed a few quotes that really bring that home in this chapter. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of interesting uh, quotes here in, in Catelyn's chapter, uh, mostly things that – actually all things that, that Ned is, is saying in this chapter, which essentially are, are, are saying that, uh, that Ned is going to die. Uh, you have – Quote, my father went south once to answer the summons of a king. He never came home again, unquote. Um, what I think is interesting about this this quote is, um, you know, in a traditional fantasy setting, you would say like, oh, well, that just means that the hero is going to subvert like the, the history here. He's going to overcome the past errors of, right. of his ancestors. But instead, you know, he doesn't. He goes south at a king's summons and he never comes home again. This is the last time that he sees Winterfell in these next few chapters and he's gone. He's he never sees sees his castle again, and that's uh, it's, it's very tragic, right? It's very sad, and happens to Rob too. He's marching the wrong way, as Osha says. He also marches south and never comes home again. And I think it's interesting that maybe the two best claimants to Winterfell, Bran and Jon, 
are the ones who go north. They're, not, they're the ones who right. don't go south into the summons of a king. They go in the opposite direction, the direction you quote-unquote should be going. And they are arguably the ones best set up to inherit Winterfell at some point. Maybe temporarily, maybe not, but Bran is Rob's most clear heir and John as his declared heir in the will. And they're the ones who went in the opposite direction. But yeah, that's a great point. It's a subversion of what you'd expect reading that the first time through. It's like, oh, Ned's going to succeed where Ricard failed. He's going he's gonna to pull it off where Dad didn't do the job, but instead he, he just he ends up repeating it. Yeah, he does. Um, and, and it's also interesting, too, in the context of, of talking about Rob, in that after he makes the decision that he's going to go south to become Hand of the King, he tells Lewin, and I think he tells Lewin this, he says, quote, he must learn to rule and I will not be here for him. And then a sentence later, he says, he must be ready when his time comes, unquote. Um, another really sad line because Ned is not going to be there for Rob uh, as Rob assumes the kingship. You know, you have in Catelyn's next chapter where she is uh, bereft and extremely sad and has uh, been at Bran's bedside for days on end. Rob comes to Catelyn and says, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. Like, I, Rickon is only three years old. What am I, what am I supposed to do with this kid? Like, he's your son. Take care of your son. I don't know how to, like, run this castle. And then Lewin steps in and he actually, he actually fulfills some of the role that, um, that Ned has, has entrusted him to. And another, uh, go Lewin moment right there for me. But at the same time, it's also sad because Ned is not going to be there for, for Rob or Catelyn or any of the other children that remain at Winterfell. Absolutely. It's it's something I talked about again in Ned's first chapter. You have these ghosts of the past, and you also have these ghosts of the future. I mean, this, this, this abyss that Ned is walking into and leaving his family behind, you can definitely see the hints of it. And um, you can see the hints of, you know, even tragedies that are, are going to come sooner than Ned dying. Like he when Ned says he that uh, they're trying to keep Bran from climbing the walls of King's Landing, as Catelyn, Catelyn tells him. And of course... In Bran's next chapter, he goes climbing on the walls of Winterfell and, and takes a great mm-hmm. fall. And, and, you know, all the king's men and all the king's horses couldn't put him back together again. And then you have Catelyn begging Ned to keep Bran at Winterfell. And as she herself says in John 2, this is like this is a, a horrible karmic twist where she gets that. Bran stays behind, but just in, in, the, in the worst way imaginable. And you can and also a nice little bit of setup for, for Bran's next chapter is... That quote I mentioned earlier about uh, the hot springs in, in Winterfell and how they are kind of pumping through the walls. And she yes. says, it, uh, the scalding waters rush through its walls and chambers like blood through a man's body. And I love this, like, this visual association of Winterfell as being like a person. And that's something Bran gets at really well. He thinks of Winterfell like a giant tree, he says, and how he kind of relates to it as a person. And how he feels almost personally betrayed by it when he falls, like Winterfell let him fall. And I, I do, you know, the the emotional resonance of Winterfell as a setting is something we've talked about a couple times. But this is where this is where it really gets home, where it feels alive. It feels like a person in and of it itself. Does. So when Ramsay, so when, and you get that at the end of Clash of Kings when Bran is at the very end when Bran is looking at Winterfell after Ramsay attacks it and thinks it's it's broken, but not dead, just like me. I'm not dead either. And you you get that association between Winterfell and Bran, and you know Winterfell, yeah, it feels alive in a way that I, I, I really enjoy and that it it makes sense and of course the payoff for that is that Winterfell is the source of life when when the long night shows up it's the one oasis it's the one place that keeps you warm and safe when when the others arrive and so associating it with life and associating it as this oasis is just a perfect build-up for that no you're, you're absolutely right I you know I, I do love the the hot springs idea and, I, and I've I've always 
wonder the source of the hot springs. Um, this is not a theory discussion. I just, uh, I'm speaking off the cuff uh, for the moment here. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there is like some sort of discussion in the books about, well, does that mean there's a dragon under Winterfell, like heating everything up? And am I misremembering that? Or am I, am I thinking that, am I too deep in the I, fan, fandom? Yeah, that's that's come up. I forget whether it, that's, that's definitely brought up in the fandom. I think it's brought up in the books themselves, like someone saying it in passing. Although I can't, yeah, I can't recall off the top of my head in what context, but yeah, it's. I mean, Winterfell is 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 definitely unique in that regard, especially in the north. So it's a, uh, it's it's supposed to stand out for sure. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, so you know the the final thing about that this foreshadows Ned dying is um, again, he's talking with Lewin and he tells him teach him teach my son the things that he knows because winter is coming. <laughs> again, you know. That's how Ned's first chapter closes with Winter is Coming. Um, that is you know, the Stark words. They have symbol and meaning for things like the others, as we talked about in previous chapters. But it also means that Winter Winter also symbolizes death. And he's saying that death is coming. So death is coming for, for Ned. Uh, and that Lewin needs to teach uh, Rob the things that he knows because Ned is about to die here in this book, tragically and unfortunately. Yeah. And that's a great point. It establishes something I brought up again in Ned's first chapter about how Ned is a mentor disguised as the protagonist. Because the things he's saying here about, look after my son, he has to learn the way, he has to take charge. Like, you know, those are things the mentor, like you say, the mentor says right before they die. That's, you know, that's that's Obi-Wan saying to Luke, you know, you put your trust in the Force. That's, you know, that's 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 Dumbledore tearing hair, trying to give Harry Potter a bunch of lessons before he dies as he knows he will. Like, but we don't. You don't necessarily realize that the first time through because it's not framed that way. Because you're seeing Ned from his his wife's POV, who who doesn't see him as a mentor protagonist, a mentor figure. Because why would she? He's right. her husband. Um, and then Ned largely, you know, we we don't actually see Ned from the perspective of his kids all that often. So we don't necessarily get a sense of him as the Obi Wan figure. Just the sheer amount of chapters he gets and the way he's central to the political plot in King's Landing makes him seem like the main character. But you go back and you reread oh, yeah. and those lines stand out. It's like, oh, okay. Right. He has to die because dramatically that's what leaves Rob untrained. And that's what leaves Rob has to step up to the plate and be the hero because his dad is gone. And that's set up immediately in this chapter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing, too, is that there is a potential double meeting uh, in there where uh, teach my son the things he needs to know. Winter is coming. Uh, Winter is also coming for Rob Stark, as we uh, we find out in Storm of Swords and with the Red Wedding, also for Catelyn. Um, you know, something that George has talked about is that he knew from the very beginning that Ned, Catelyn, and Rob would all die in, in the books. And that's um, good. It's good writing on his part that he is reinforcing that theme and he's adding a little bit of, of nuance and a little bit of double meaning here potentially I'm not saying that was George's intent it's just something that I just noticed in <laughs> you know in this in this moment here so um, if you want to find more about R plus L equals J and the number of the hints that George has embedded into a Game of Thrones uh, there's no one that I could re- recommend more than our friend and our quote unquote friend uh, Chloe aka at Lies and Arbor on Twitter she also has a terrific series on uh, Ashara Dane. So Winter came for Ned. Winter eventually comes for Catelyn. Winter 
uh, came, came for Rob Stark as well. Um, but there's another character that Winter has come from years in advance of, of this, this chapter, and that is the mysterious Asharadane, Lady of Starfall. And uh, she is brought up in this chapter, um, and she's not really brought up a whole lot in the books as, as it stands. There is, and I believe that our, I had referenced um, earlier about our friend Chloe, um, how she had, um, she's cataloged the number of times that Ashara is brought up, and I believe it's like 15 in the entirety of the series. Um, you have a I few think references. It's 10. She's mentioned this to 10? me a few times. I think it's 10, okay, but yeah, so it's 10, 10 to 15, somewhere in that range. My, yeah. my apologies. I, I, I trust you as, as being the, the expert on, more of an expert on, on this subject than, than me. But yeah, so it's, it's only 10 uh, references in the entirety of, of all five published books of A Song of Ice and Fire. And um, there's a line in the fifth book. So we're we're gonna dial forward here, and we're gonna we're not. This is not gonna, this this theory discussion is going to be more informal than some of our previous ones, um, and we're also not gonna have a bad theory because we already addressed the bad theory, which is that Callan's a bitch, and you're wrong if you think that. But the theory that we're going to talk about a little bit about today is this idea that comes up late in a Dance with Dragons, where Barristan Selmy is thinking about a Dane, and he has this line about that there was a Stark who quote unquote dishonored a Dane, and I. I don't, I'll, I'll phrase it this way. I have ideas about who that Stark is. I also don't think that there was any Stark who quote unquote dishonored a Shardane, but I think that Barristan as a, um, oh gosh, Barristan. I don't like Barristan Selmy as a character. Um, I mean, I think he's a great character. I don't really like him as a person, but I think he's, he's a prude. I think that his idea of quote unquote dishonoring is very much tied to his identity as a Kingsguard Knight and his chastity and his uh, virginity. Cause I don't think that Barristan's ever been laid once in his entire life. Um, but he would think that, yeah, <laughs> I think that's true. Right. I mean, you, you have a bunch of these other Kingsguard knights, which seem a lot more interesting that have mistresses and, you know, are, you know, people like Kristen Cole who have uh, a mistress in princess Rhaenyra, eventually queen Rhaenyra. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Barrison is, is kind of a duller when it comes to that, that personal side. Cause this for him, the personal and the professional are, are welded into one. He is a Kingsguard knight and, and a Kingsguard knight is what Barrison is. But regardless, that's kind of a bit of a, of, of an, of an aside. Um, I don't, I don't think that there was anything dishonorable about what happened with the Shardane, um, and the unknown Stark, at least in the narrative. But I was curious. Do you think that Barristan is on to something here, or was that more of more of Barristan just kind of talking in in the guise of Barristan? <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting to consider which which Stark it was that, that slept with the Shardane at Harrenhal. I've heard arguments in multiple directions. Uh, I get the idea that it was uh, that it was Brandon, and that it's Ned and Ashara being together is purely a red herring to disguise R plus L equals J. Uh, that, you know, you think, oh, that's who Ned was in love with. Maybe that's John's mom. But then it turns out it was Brandon who slept with her. I get that argument. It fits with how Brandon is presented as kind of a horn dog. And as like the, as like a Robert figure, just, you know, always swaggering around, sleeping with all the ladies. That's kind of how Barbary presents him in A Dance with Dragons. I lean towards Ned for a couple reasons. Uh, you know, we get the mention at the Tourney of Hall about Brandon speaking to Ashara on Ned's behalf to get her to dance with Ned, so that speaks to Ned having a crush on her. Uh, and we, I don't yep. get the sense that Brandon was... Because you really have to be an asshole to do that to your brother. To like, you know, he's shy, you speak on his yeah. behalf to get him a dance with a nice girl and then go ahead and sleep with her. 
I don't know. We don't know much about Brandon. I never got the sense he was that kind of that kind of a douche. No, because that would really be a no. cruel thing to do to your brother. And and also just the way Ned talks in this chapter about. Okay, let's think through the logic of Ned here. Okay, so he wants everyone to think that John is his son, and he wants he wants any kind of rumor that that's not the case to 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 fall away in conversation. So wouldn't it? benefit him for everyone to talk about Ashara Dane and gossip about her and assume that's John's mom? Right. Wouldn't that be a good thing from his perspective? But he, he clamps down on it. He says, no, you can't bring up Ashara. I don't want any servants in this castle bringing up that name. Never say that name to me again. He gets angry at her for the only time. Right. So that makes me think that the feelings are still strong and that they are overwhelming what should be his desire to keep this gossip going. And because, you know, he want, he should want everyone to just assume that Ashara is John's mom. But the fact that he's clamping down, that makes me think he's still got feelings and that there was something genuinely there. And this is something Stephen Outlaw has talked about that adds such a layer of of pathos to that backstory that this is the relationship Ned could have had and that those two were genuinely in love but wars tore them apart and then you know Ned showed up at Starfall and he'd he'd participated in killing her brother and you know there's, it adds a whole layer of tragedy to it and also yeah. like if Ned if Ned and Ashara were never together if they never had a strong relationship if you know for all we know they could have been betrothed because as Harwin points out Brandon was the one betrothed to Catelyn at that point right so maybe Ned had Ashara in mind as a potential bride for me if that if none of that is true if Ned and Ashara never had a relationship if it was Brandon who slept with her if it was just a random crush Ned had for one night it makes no sense that there is a Dane called Ned that makes no sense to me. It makes no sense that the Danes would honor Ned that much to nickname right. one of one of their own, their next lord, after him. Because then he means nothing to them. In fact, they should hate him because he participated in killing Arthur Dane. He rose up against right. the Targaryens. Like, they, they should despise him. Ashara may have killed herself because of him. For me, that only makes sense if Ned and Ashara were genuinely together, if they had a potential relationship, if they maybe were betrothed and the Danes might have been on board with that and they understand that war has swept them apart. Yeah. That that um, that emotionally makes sense to me. It doesn't emotionally make sense the other way, but that's just me. Again, I've seen a lot of arguments on all sides of this one. Yeah, so I I, I tend to agree that it was most in in my mind. It's most likely um, Ned Stark, who was the Stark who um, had an affair or was betrothed to Ashara Dane. So I'm indebted to a great Song of Ice and Fire luminary and writer by the name of Stefan Sasse, who wrote his great piece called Southern Ambitions back in 2012 for my rationale why I think that Ned was the Stark who was with Ashara Dane. Um, just to set a little bit of background about this this theory, um, the theory postulates that the House Baratheon, House Stark, House Aaron, and House, um, House Tully were all intermarrying with each other in advance of Robert's Rebellion in order to create an alliance uh, to over, uh, to unseat Eris, the second Targaryen. Um, and then you also have, in addition to that, you have evidence in some of Jamie's chapters in A Storm of Swords about how Lysa Aaron was being presented to Tywin Lannister as a potential uh, marriage partner for uh, Jamie. So you can have the potential that the Southern conspirators were trying to um, balloon out their alliance to include other houses. You also have uh, stuff too, like this this point that isn't really brought up a whole lot, but you have uh, Brendan Tully, who his brother Hoster attempts to um, wed him to Bethany Redwine, who is a member of House Redwine from the Reach. 
so it makes sense that the the southern conspirators were looking to branch out a bit. And and I think here I'll talk a little bit more about the Bethany Redwine and the uh, Brendan Tully thing in that the Tyrells were traditional supporters of House Targaryen. They were um, strong. They had the strongest army, and also the Red Wines had the strongest navy outside of the uh, the royal fleet. So, if the Southern conspirators were attempting to pretend, potentially cut off support for the Iron Throne, marrying into the Red Wines would be a great way of doing that. It provided them. It would provide them with a the fleet, and it would also undercut Mace Tyrell and the other Reachmen who would be supporting the Iron Throne. So that back ends into reaching into Dorne to potentially undercut Doran, or rather the Martell, House Martell, and their support for the Iron Throne. So um, the Martells were intermarried with the Targaryens back to Darren II, who married Mariah Martell, uh, just prior to the first Blackfyre Rebellion. But in the, um, just prior to Robert's Rebellion, you have uh, Aerys II wedding his son Rhaegar, not wedding his son, betrothing his son Rhaegar to Ilya of Dorne, and then marrying and having children. So the Dornish and Targaryen alliance was strong. The way you might undercut that is by intermarrying with a strong subordinate house to the Dornish. And one of the major subordinate houses in Dorne is the Danes. So having Ashara and Ned as a second son marrying into the Danes has the, in similar ways that Brendan Tully being the second son marrying into the Redwines, has the ability to undercut the alliance, uh, undercut support for the Iron Throne among one of the Iron Thrones, among the Targaryens' uh, allies in, in the Dornish and in House Martell. Perfectly said. I agree. Um, yeah, I think that pretty much sums up the best case for, for Ned and Ashara. Uh, like we've alluded a couple times, the, the go-to person on all things Ashara Dane is Chloe Ketchum, a.k.a. at Lies and Arbor Gold on Twitter. She's in the midst of an excellent series on the lady in question and just... You know, digging deep into all the times she's mentioned the text, what her backstory is, you know, what could have happened to her, and she, she's, she's doing an amazing job on that, so I highly re- recommend those essays. As she would say to us, you're doing amazing, sweetie. So, Chloe, you're doing amazing, sweetie. <laughs> Damn straight. Damn straight, sir. Cool, and, uh, and with that, I think, we, I think we have pretty much exhausted this here chapter. I think you are absolutely correct. So thank you everyone to listening for us and in hope that you've enjoyed this episode and enjoyed our previous ones and you'll be enjoying for the for the years to come. Absolutely. Once again, you can find us at 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 not a cast ASOIAF on Twitter. Our email is same thing, not a cast ASOIAF at gmail.com. And uh, like I said, we got our, our Patreon that you can start setting up for, even though, again, you won't be charged for it until April the 1st. And um, you can join us next week for our, our next chapter, the, the eighth chapter in the Game of Thrones, which is our very first from the POV of Arya Stark. Arya. I always remember uh, the, the Davos Fingers, their thing, Arya, underfoot, horse face. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, it's just going to be us chanting that for like an hour. Pretty much. That's just what the next episode is going to be. So, Pretty much. so support the heck out of that. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, if you have a chance and you um, want to help us out a little bit more, uh, you don't have to worry about Patreon necessarily if that's not your thing. And that's totally fine if it's not. But if you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or Acast or any of these other places that you listen to your podcast, we, we would love that. It helps other people, other like-minded people find us and enjoy some of the fun that we have together. Damn straight. So, yeah, thanks for listening, guys, and catch you next week. See ya.
The Not A Podcast podcast is written and recorded by Poor Quentin and Brendan Peepish. The music that you hear is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the closing song is called Alaska Bye. Thanks for everyone for listening, and we will see you all next week. Thank you.